0: You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. So I was going to talk about um what i do what i teach on i used to call myself a blogger but i don't do that anymore i try to educate so everything i write now has a timelessness about it so i well my my blog which is well my site which is canyonwalkerconnections.com now has lots of resources so if you want to understand uh, compelling arguments for same-sex marriage or the verses that's the kind of stuff i put up there now And but um, I was going to tell stories along that 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 were the summary of what I taught yesterday because what I taught yesterday was the history of religious and cultural discrimination against the LGBTQ community in America, and I was going to string it together with compelling stories of like the first man that decided in 1868, his name was Carl Kurt Benny, to look at the way people entered into sexual relationships instead of by the role they played. Did they play the masculine or the feminine role? Were they the penetrator or penetrated? And he decided, he was the first one that looked at that and said, no, I'm going to look at what people are, who people are attracted to, what and who people are attracted to. So I was going to tell his compelling story and then another one about a person, a woman in 1956, who was the first person to study, actually do some studies on people who were gay and people who were straight. But the words would have been homosexual and heterosexual at the time. And she did the first research to show that homosexuality was not a pathology. It was not a mental illness. She's a good story. And then the first gay activist, Frank Kameny, who I actually went to his funeral about four years ago in D.C. at the old post office in in Washington, which is now the Trump Hotel. But it's just really funny. The last time I was in there, the number one gay activist in America was laying in state in what's now the the lobby of the Trump Hotel. And then, you know, just other stories. And then, unfortunately, I sat, where are you, Caleb? You were around here. Yeah, I sat. I sat with Caleb last night in the car for a half hour and talked. (laughs) And Caleb said what he always found most compelling when he had listened to me in the past was my own story. I thought, well, that's a story I can tell, so um, and that I'm very familiar with and hopefully will inspire you because I am a a major voice for activism for the LGBT community in the United States and also to uh, educate. Um, I call the work that I do where scholarship meets faith. I love to research. Um, I love to, I I go into these holes of research where I don't come out for days. I just start reading. I I read a lot. And and so there's no reason I should be here but times that I said yes, experiences that I've had, the calling of God on my life, and the gifting to do certain things, but I wouldn't have looked like that. So what I'm hoping is that maybe by the end of this, after you hear my story, maybe you'll look into your own life and say, okay, I don't look like much. I don't look like I have very much to bring to the table. What can I do in this? But as Bob said, as people of faith, we are called to works of justice. So there is likely something in your life. There is likely some gifts within your life that you can use to work towards a call of justice. It may not be the LGBTQ movement, it could be children, it could be sex trafficking, it could be poverty, it could be racism, whatever the call is, you may not look like much. I would have never looked at my life and imagined that I would be in the position I am to educate now. I mean, I didn't really start until the age of 50, so that's pretty amazing, and most of you are under 50. And so um, I was born in New York City. Uh, I was raised a Catholic. I went to Catholic school. And part of the reason I care about justice, it only really came to me late in life, is when I was two years old, I had brothers that were four and six, and my father left. He walked out to get a container of milk, and he never came back. And so I grew up in an Irish Catholic neighborhood where about 40% of the kids I went to school with at Good Shepherd Catholic School even had brogues because they were first-generation Irish. So it was a really strong Irish Catholic neighborhood. And in my school, I was the only girl in my school from a divorced family. So this was the early 60s. I'm 62 now, so it was the early 60s. It was incredibly stigmatizing. I was always lying. Um, because I was the only kid without a father, I would make up stories. My father, I mean, I don't know how as an 8- and 9-year-old I would f- figure out these stories and think they were very compelling stories. Oh, he's an insurance man. He only works at night. And, you know, that's why you never see him. He's, he sleeps during the day and he works at night. Everybody knew I was lying. But I had to tell these stories because my mother couldn't even cope with the shaming in her own community. So she never gave me language to understand what was going on in my own life. So it was pretty isolating. I've always been this uh, on-the-outside, happy, extroverted kid, but I had no understanding of what was going on in my own life. And I saw my mother excommunicated from the Catholic Church. That's what people did at that time. They took people, no matter what the circumstance was, they excommunicated those that were divorced. So my mother was excommunicated, and she still insisted that I go to church. So even when she remarried when I was about 14, she still insisted that I go to church. We moved two miles away to Tenafly, New Jersey, and she didn't demand that of my brothers, but she demanded that of me. So every Sunday morning, I was the only one in the family that would get up, walk down the hill, go to Mount Carmel, supposedly. But really what I did was I went to the newspaper store, and I bought a copy of the New York Times. You know, here I was, 14, 15. And I would sit in the... Um, Sit somewhere if it was warm enough outside and do the crossword puzzle in pen. I mean, that's, that's who I am. But I was lying. You know, I wasn't going to church. I was doing the Times crossword puzzle. I couldn't, I couldn't reconcile in my head who this God was that I should like or love him because he excommunicated and didn't care about my mother. And so I guess this sat long within me that God didn't love me. God didn't love my mother because, due to something we couldn't control, we we had nothing to do with it. It was my father that walked out. So you can see how this would sit on me for many years. That, you know, and eventually come up in a justice issue that LGBTQ people can't do anything about their sexual orientation yet God doesn't love them. So that set and percolated with me in me for years. Um, I was. I can tell that God has done a great deal of healing in my life, that I can stand up and talk for six hours about issues of sexuality. Because if you you sat and you listened to me, you know that I say, um, when I speak, there's three words I say constantly. I say patriarchy. Um, procreation and penetration. I mean, those uh, all the time. When I spoke last week, I was in uh, Atlanta, and I spoke to a select group of 40 pastors and ministry leaders from one of the largest churches in America behind scenes. And you know, those are not comfortable words to say around those sorts of people. And to call them flat out, the 1930s definition, to call them sexual perverts, it's a funny line, but you know, when I talk about the history of uh, sexuality, and my friend went in with me, and he counted, and I said, penetrate 41 times in two hours, patriarchy 20, 28 times, and procreate 17 times. You know, those are not typical conversations that pastors hear, but oh well, they heard it. And so, but to get to this point in my life where I can speak about human sexuality incredibly comfortably, God had to do a great deal healing in my own life because I, as with many women, and many men, I'm a victim of the Me Too movement, too. Sexual abuse from the age of uh, five until about 12. So the fact that I can do all of this says that God has been very real within my life and bringing me to this point. Because if I had a lot of sexual shame, believe me, I couldn't be standing up and talking about the issues that I talk about all the time incredibly comfortably. Um, I went to school. I, um, I was the product of... The women's movement, the women's movement of the 1960s, I didn't have to work for it at all. I went to high school in 1970 and college in 1974. So the, I was the beneficiary, of the first generation of women that benefited from the women's movement. And that put an unbelievable amount of strength within me. And for you young women, we haven't gotten that again. It disappeared in the early 1980s, the religious right. And so, I hit that decade though and I'm very grateful for it because there's nothing inside of me that says I shouldn't or I can't. So there's that attitude plus that New York City thing, I have this I dare you to step in front of me. And so I went to I went to engineering school in 1975 at Rutgers University where they had just allowed women to come into the college four years before. And <laughs> The engineering school was 2% women. Yay for a heterosexual woman, right? Who was, was pretty smart, so I didn't have to s- study tons of a lot, so I could date all the engineers. That was nice. And, but I, I came out and very empowered as a woman that could do anything. So that became part of my story. And it, you don't see these things building in your life. You don't see these major pieces being put into you, um, and you cannot possibly imagine this mismatch of things and problems and events in your life would be something that God could one day use. Because as I said, I could have never imagined that I would be where I am in my life doing these, these issues of justice. Um, I moved after... After I lived in on the East Coast for a while, I followed a boyfriend to Seattle. I unfollowed a boyfriend to Seattle. I ended up in Reno, Nevada on an engineering project, and I ended up staying there. So in 1982, I went to Reno. I worked on a ranch, um, not as a cowgirl. I did the water and waste treatment design on a ranch. You know, every woman's dream. And so, but I lived in a $200 a month uh, ranch hand house on the ranch, 6,000 acres behind me. And that's where I lived. And um, the short version of the story of how I got married is I stole my boyfriend's sister's boyfriend. Okay, like do the math in your head, do the chart. Not terribly reputable, but that's what I did. And uh, then I had, uh, over the next few years, I had two children, pretty close in proximity, 15 months apart. Andrew is 31, he lives in Squaw Valley. He's an Uber athlete and a really hard working property manager. My daughter, Sam. Works in New York City, um, and oddly, four generations of women in my family were all born on Manhattan Island, and my daughter was born in Reno, Nevada, and she lives and works on Manhattan Island. She went back, so I guess we have a strong pull within within our family. Um, I homeschooled those children, and they're pretty healthy, shockingly, but I homeschooled them, um, and I homeschooled them because I didn't want the world to infect my children. I am one of them. I am everything that are my greatest opponents now. When I was 18 years old, I went down to the Tenafly Borough Hall on my birthday and registered as a Republican. I was a registered Republican until the primaries of the last election. And I did that partially strategically because I'm constantly trying to look like the people I'm speaking into the lives of. Like I can't be a Methodist, I have to be a conservative evangelical. It fits with me, but I'm trying to look like the people that I'm speaking to because I'm trying to lower all the objections I possibly can because my core message is, is fraught with tons of objections to a lot of people. So I homeschooled those kids, and the end why I stopped homeschooling them is my marriage of almost 20 years started falling apart. My husband was unfaithful. I did the right Christian thing. I forgave. I forgave again. (laughs) But I stayed within the marriage and I healed. So all of these things, I mean, it just looked like my life was a disaster and it was not gonna go anywhere. My Christian message was gonna be destroyed. I honestly thought that one day I would be on some stages talking about my healed marriage. You know, that's what I really thought my life was headed to, and that didn't happen. And um, so the way I started coping with divorce or impending divorce that even my children didn't know about was I started hiking every day to keep my body busy and I took a a class at a community college so that I could um, do a language and languages are the most difficult things for me to do. So here I was, 50 years old, I had never met a gay person that I knew of. Nobody had ever said to me, Kathy, I'm gay, nobody. And uh, within the span of a couple of weeks on a hiking trail, I ran into a woman that I kept seeing, and her name was Neto, and I started hiking with her. And I actually said to her one day, I was walking down the trail, I didn't want to go home. My husband was doing a lot of yelling at the time, and I didn't want to go home, so I wanted to hike again. And I'd seen her enough, so I said to her, do you mind, I actually said to her, do you mind if I turn around and walk with you for a while? And she is my best friend. to this day, 17 years later, to everything I'm not. Woman of color, very dark skinned, Hispanic last name, Native American, Cochiti Indian, um, lesbian and an atheist. And that is who God picked to clean up my act of uh, judgmentalism. And also in the same month, I was paired up the very first night of Italian class with the only gay guy in class. So all of a sudden, I'm confronted with gay people in my life. And I was polite about it. I was shocked by a lot of things, but I was polite about it. And I walked that path for still about five, five or six years. And I never confronted my theology on this. So you can see this is a very slow journey for me. It, I'm telling you again, it didn't look like I was going anywhere. And... Um, had gone through a divorce, had tried to restart a career in, in technology sales, and um, and so I didn't con- I didn't look at the verses at all because what I heard was gay people didn't want anything to do with church and church didn't want to do anything to have anything to do with gay people. So why should I deal with the scriptures that had to do with it? I just knew they were in the Bible and I knew they were anti-gay. So why invest any time in that? and uh, I just didn 't bother and then I happened to be reading the New York Times again, <laughs> and on the front page of The New York Times in December of two thousand and six, there was an article on the gay Christian network and there was an article that Justin Lee, who's now been a friend for years, um, he was talking he was talking to a, to the reporter, and they were at someone 's house, and there were two men holding hands, reading their Bible together, and they were in a Bible study. And I had never thought, this is 2006, I had never even conceived of the two words together of gay and Christian. Never thought of it. it did even cross my radar. So I went to the website immediately, and I started clicking around, expecting to see pure heresy. And when I went to the mission statement, I I believed the mission statement, I agreed with it. And that bothered me, it really bothered me because this was a very quick transformation. In my head, it was like, I agree with this. Three weeks later, I found myself at the GCN conference in Seattle. Were you there, Steve, at that one? Were you there, you weren't at that one? I don't know which one I met you at. And um, so I went to this and it was less than 200 people at that conference and I was the first straight ally. I didn't even know that's what I was called. (laughs) I was the first straight person to show up at a GCN conference, but the first night of worship, that was it, did me in. I stood at the back of the room and I watched gay, there were no trans people in the room, uh, watched gay people worshiping God and my heart was in it. My head was so confused as to what was going on, but I, I knew it was the truth. And I came home and started having to deal with scripture. But it still took me another year to deal with scripture. And the reason was I was still playing this game of not understanding and then hiking on a trail with Netto. I can tell you the spot on a dirt trail where I was talking to her about she was about to go off on a weekend with a bunch of uh, RVing lesbians. And, uh, and I said, I, I said something to her and she, she couldn't wait to get away because she felt safe with this group of women, these RVing lesbians. And I thought, why doesn't, <laughs> this is a ridiculous question. Why doesn't she feel safe like I feel safe? I don't understand why she feels so unsafe. It was still not registering with me. And she said, you know, Kathy, <laughs> slap, slap, um, your, Uh, you're white you're Christian you're heterosexual and she said I'm none of those things she said I'm a woman of color I'm an agnostic I'm a lesbian and it's so hard for me to say this all the time but she said not even God loves me that was it it was that one spot that I can point to on dirt that changed my life, when a woman that I loved as a friend told me God didn't love her. And that forced me into the scriptures. That one sentence forced me to look at the scriptures. So we had a particularly snowy week that year. Um, the business I was working for shut down for the week. People, I, at my house last year, I had 12 feet of snow. I get a lot of snow. I live at 5,600 feet right below a ski resort. And so every day, I decided to take one of the clobber verses. And I took out two computers. And I took out the concordances that I had and history books. I've always been a reader. And I tried to think about these verses in context. And I took one verse a day. And at the end of each day, I was so devastated by what I read that I figured out by myself and what I didn't see. That I would, I would, um, I was skiing around the neighborhood because I couldn't even get out of the neighborhood. And I was sobbing in tears at what had been done because now it was real to me. And these verses didn't mean what I thought they meant. So after, this was in 2008, and I started this journey in 2001. So I'm not this incredibly, people see me as something like, You know, she woke up one day, threw a rainbow boa around her neck and started marching. It was not like that. I was very conservative, living in the bubble, homeschooling my children, and it was relationship that did this. It was one relationship with one person that God picked out for me that met and matched my personality where I could hear her on a hiking trail. I can hear on a hiking trail. And so my friends were confronting me about this. When are you going to tell her about Jesus? I thought, no, that's not how it's going to work with me. And uh, when I wouldn't confront her about Jesus, in one day, my three closest friends, combining 67 years of friendship, decided they couldn't tolerate me anymore. And in one day, they all walked out on me. And two of them, because they had also, in this period of time, I'd been meeting them with... For, for 15 to 10 years of uh, breakfast every Friday morning. These are my closest friends. And they just didn't want to be seen with me because people were thinking, because of the work I started doing, that I was a lesbian. And so my single girlfriends didn't want to be seen with me because people would think they were lesbians. <laughs> and so they stepped out of my life as well. So it was, it was a v- pretty difficult time, because I still didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. I knew that I had this compassion for justice, but I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing. And in the beginning of this, uh, there's a church in San Francisco Freedom in Christ Church, Pastor Maria Caruana, and it seemed like that church community took me in to educate me. And they invited me to parties and plays. It's a four-hour drive from Reno, so I was trying to be educated. And one of the wisest things they said to me, one person in particular, Ed Ness, said to me is, don't speak for us, don't do that. So this was wise in 2008. People weren't having these conversations in 2008? I mean, it seems like they may have been talking about this for a long time. That's not true. People weren't talking about this in 2008. But they wisely said to me, which is what I would say to an ally now, don't talk for people, learn who they are first. So within community, I was safe enough to ask all my stupid questions. It's a lie to say that there are no stupid questions because I asked all the stupid questions about sex, about, I asked all those questions. I got great answers, people that just let me be who I was. And I found that I was moving into a role within GCN kind of as the mother and an encourager. So parents were still not showing up at conferences. I was getting so much mail from kids because I was doing a lot of YouTube and short YouTubes. So much mail from kids saying, I wish you were my mother. You're the mother I wish I had. And at conferences until about three or four years ago, parents weren't showing up. So I was the, I was the parent. And the odd thing is, and I don't know how I got skipped over, but my children are straight. I don't even have any gay cousins. I have a, no gay nothing. You know, a trans person would be a bargain, but I don't have anything. I have no trans, <clears throat> no gay, nothing in my family. So there I was this role of mother and encourager within GCN for probably 10 years. And then it started shifting because I started asking deeper questions. I wanted to start addressing the conservative community about what they believed and what was the truth. So as I asked basic questions, I thought, I'll, I'll write a book. So the original form of the book was supposed to be, it was supposed to be, um, "I'm uh, this is who I am. I haven't always been this particularly nice but then I had these events in my life. I figured it out. Here's what the verses mean. Here's a couple of gay Christians in their own voice. Don't you want to be just like me? Fairly egocentric, and or perhaps mostly. And as I started to write the book, it completely changed. It was like God was just waiting for the buy-in. Like, Kathy, you're a sucker. You're fairly obedient. If I can just get you to sign on the dotted line in the spirit, you know, I got you, girl. And um, I started a book, and I just kept asking questions, like, how did that happen? How did that happen? How did that happen? I was one of those persistent children that asked questions, it finally paid off fifty years later. but a, a pain. I'm just a like absolute pain. i'm I'm I push. Um, I go after things doggedly. I don't stop until I get an answer. It's just who I am. You know, thank goodness, but not great as a teenage girl at all. And then I was cursed or blessed with the same thing in my own daughter. <laughs> and she's a wonderful young woman, but those, those teenage years, she was me. And so I've, I've learned to just let her be, to be a push, to be a question asker. And so I ended up writing Walking the Bridges Canyon. And how I started approaching the whole issue was foundational. How have we understood human sexuality? How has that changed over history? What are the things that have built into the cultural uh, discrimination against same-sex people, um, same-sex loving people? What are the political things that have gone into that? What are the medical issues that people keep bringing up? I mean, I did a great chapter on AIDS and then talking about marriage in there. And I just built this foundation and I found out it worked because it was appealing to people. You have had those conversations where you talk about scripture and the conversations don't work. They just don't work because we agree to disagree. And I was trying to approach it in a different way that people could understand why we have these beliefs about the Bible that we do. And the most recent work that I've done is, I think, actually going to be the most interesting of my life. In uh, sept- uh, last summer t- sometime, a friend of mine, uh, my, a friend Ed at Oxford, that had come to my seminar two different times, late in life in his late 40s, he was convinced then that what I was saying was the truth. He didn't want to disappoint God, went to Fuller, And just didn't want to disappoint God had been a youth pastor a missionary to Japan and after the second seminar he said I think like you might be telling the truth and he decided to come out and then he became a fan fan fanboy of mine and uh, we he when I would go down to Southern California he'd invite me to stay at his cottage in Long Beach I'm not a fool Of course I would. But then he started doing something very unusual. He took really seriously what I said about the word homosexual never appeared in any language in any version of the Bible until 1946 in the Revised Standard Version New Testament and then the full Bible in 1952, Revised Standard Version whole whole Bible. And he started collecting because he had the money to do it old Bibles and manuscripts and concordances and dictionaries. And if you had been there yesterday, he had tables filled with these Bibles, some from the 1700s, concordances and dictionaries from the 1500s. And we started really seriously considering old documents. And then of course the next question that pops up is, I wonder what that original translation team was thinking about. And so in September, we went back to Yale University, and we spent a week in the Yale archives. The head of the translation team was a man named Luther Weigel, who was the dean of the Yale Divinity School. And we knew, we had researched, and we found out the translation notes were there. So we went back. There were 23 rolls of microfilm, each with an average of 2,000 sheets on it, and 19 boxes of, of paper archives. And we spent five days going through that, and on the third day I found the only piece of evidence as to why they did it. It was so under the radar, but I found the letter, a letter going back and forth between a seminarian and Dr. Weigel as to why he put this word in the Bible, or why the translation team did. There was no malice attached to it. It was really an understanding of what human sexuality was at the time, which was very little understanding which when I teach, I try to teach a progression of what people have understood. And because I understood what people in the 30s and 40s would have understood about homosexuality, I could read what he was saying and understand that there was no malice. We spent five days with this man in his archives, seeing his grocery lists, seeing his congratulations on your new baby cards. We saw everything. I got to know this man. And so it caused great sadness in me to know that This was a mistake in the beginning. So then the next question comes up is, it's just a logical question in my head that says, as we knew better about human sexuality, did we do better with Bible translations on these verses? And the next time homosexual appeared in the Bible, in Romans and Leviticus, was 1971. So the word homosexual wasn't there till 1946 in one verse. And then in 1971, it was added on in two more verses. This is only a 50-year-old issue and all the damage that it's done to lives in 50 years. It was devastating to see that. When I found that letter, I went up into the atrium and sobbed over Ed's beautiful gay clothing, you know, it was his nice clothing, and I was snotting into his shoulder because it was so devastating. So then the next question came up a couple of weeks later. Why don't we try to dig into the translation notes of the other problematic versions that have been sold to the evangelical market. So that's the project we're on now. We're starting to dig in, and because I am that pest and persistent person, I was told three months ago that some archived material that I really wanted or some translation notes that I really wanted weren't even available. And then somebody in absolute frustration with me sent me a short note and said, what you're looking for is at And he told me where. And those translation notes are really important. And what we found out when we went to Yale was, shockingly, nobody, nobody had ever gone into Luther Weigel's archives. The the microfilms had never been called for. The paper notes had never been called for. And we were the first to do it. Now, it was a very simple question that I asked. How did that happen? And that has brought both Ed and I to this position where we're probably going to make quite an impact in the evangelical world by confronting lies and showing how it happened. I'm pretty sure with what I know already that as we knew better, we didn't do better. I mean, it's not only just no, it's hell no. There's so much manipulation in there. And there's so much, if you go there, we will not promote your Bibles. If you don't do this, we will not promote your Bibles. I can say those things, but as I said, where I shine is academics, and scholar- academics, scholarship, and faith. So I now am taking it as my job to prove this because I want the proof of this. So we're going to be spending the next year going through archives and writing a book And you would have never picked me out as the one that would do this. I took what I had. I took the gifts that I have. I just kept saying yes. I just kept showing up with the personality that God gave me, which annoys some people, but apparently God likes And I took the opportunities. I did relationship with people. I opened myself up to questions. I opened myself up to answers that are not standard. And I took those things, and I just kept walking. And now I'm an activist for justice. I wouldn't have seen this. So wherever you are, you've got gifts. You've got things that may not be the best stuff in your life. You have quirkiness to you but you have also passions. And as Bob said in the beginning, we as people of faith are supposed to work for justice. Whatever that thing is within you, use it because I was unbelievably unlikely to do this work. And my work, my life now is very productive and will change, I am pretty confident to say this, I would have never said this 10 years ago, but to change millions of lives and to stop a pattern of destruction from conservative Christianity on the LGBT community. So my hope and blessing for you is that you seek those things within you and that you ask those questions and that you don't be afraid to ask those questions. What am I gifted at? What can I do? God, what will you have me do? And it will unfold. As I said, I didn't start until I was 50. And Ask the questions, but if it doesn't happen to you till you're 50, it doesn't happen to you till you're 50. So blessings on you. Do justice. Thank you. you Um, Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. take a time, I'll just focus on my first one. Um, so this is a, kind of a two-fold um, question. So you mentioned the first activist in 1956 to determine sexu- homosexuality is not a mental illness. What was your name?
1: Evelyn Hooker.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, do you know if this impacted the APA's stance at the time or thereafter? Um, and also I was Wondering if you could explain uh, what the qualifications are um, maybe then versus now on what constitutes a mental illness and if this issue specifically shifted the definition. I can't speak to what constitutes a mental illness, but I've done a lot of work within that period. So the woman is Evelyn Hooker, and she actually was in, in LA. She was a night teacher at UCLA. She developed a relationship Again, it was relationship with a student in her class that was closeted gay and his cousin, George, and then after the class ended, she ended up in a relationship. She and her husband ended up in a relationship with this gay couple, the homosexual company. Wouldn't have said gay. And she, he challenged her and he said, the APA says that we are mentally ill. That designation had really started in the 30s the, the 40s, the, the early 40s, and had gone through. and she was even teaching it in high school. She was a psychology professor. And she, he challenged her and said, they say that we're mentally ill, but no one seems to have um, engaged us in real life. So she developed, a, 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 she took three different tests um, that were accepted at the time, one of them being the Warshak test, and she found 30 gay men and 30, 30 homosexuals 30 heterosexuals, and she gave them this test, and then she shuffled the papers, and took the papers to the people that created the tests, and they couldn't pick out the homosexuals. And she was the first person in history that had ever done any scientific research was homosexuality a pathology, was a mental illness, 1956. She gave the results of the paper to the APA convention in 1956, at the end of the study, a year study. She was funded by the National Institute of Mental Health, which had just been formed. Within the National Institute of Mental Health, they lovingly called this study the fruit study, but she was funded by them. And she presented the paper to the full membership of the APA. Not, uh, you could hear a pin drop, everybody listened, but they did absolutely nothing with it because she was a woman. She was not to be heard or understood. She didn't have the creds. She did, but not within the male community. And it took another 13 years for that paper that the National Institute of Mental Health after Stonewall, after Compton Cafeteria, after the Mardi Gras incident in San Francisco, when the gay movement just started burgeoning. The, the National Institute of Mental Health turned back to Evelyn Cooker 13 years later and they said to her, okay, can, can you write a paper for us? Because we've got the hippies, we've got the women, we've got the civil rights movement, we've got all of these groups coming out. Gay people are starting to come out. How do we handle it? So she wrote another paper in 1969 for the National Institute of Mental Health, which is under the federal auspices of the, the federal government. It was under the Nixon administration and the Nixon administration made a decision to hide the papers, to hide the report, and then some gay person that was in those caverns where the report was hidden published an unauthorized copy of the report. And it was finally proof in 1970 that gay people were not mentally ill. So it was a slow progression within the APA then for the next few years to depathologize it. It's a great story filled with lots of humanity it was eventually one person, again it's always one person it seems, mm-hmm. the head of the nomenclature committee that said, he was <clears throat> impacted, and that story is in the book, he was impacted and he went back to his hotel room with a gay activist and they rewrote the definition of homosexuality and depathologized it in 1973. So, and then it started a progression coming out of pathology over the next years, they, they, they wanted to slowly do it so that people still had access to mental health care. So it was slowly done, just the same way that it's been done with trans transgender people. They're still calling it dysphoria so that they can still get access to mental health care. Mm-hmm. It's not a sickness, but they're calling it an uneasiness so they can still have access, which is something I agree with. And so it, it was it was slow, but not Your question. As it, so it, it, um, it came out of those shadows of mental illness, and then somehow, oh, let's call it the religious right, perhaps merging with politics. By 1978, it was no longer a pathology, but the church made it into a sin. Now, right? Because you can before that it was just a pathology. Now it's a sin. Hmm. It's a horrible progression. Uh, this question is done from my own. But at the end of your talk, you uh, you mentioned that this new work that you're doing about getting to the bottom of when and where the errant translations of homosexual came from the Bible. And while I'm sure that there are some number of, of Christians who truly in their heart of hearts would like to include gays and lesbians, in their congregations but just feel totally constrained by Scripture, that for that small number of people, your, your work would allow them to break through their last barrier. So the reality is, in today's atmosphere, if a pastor comes out as affirming, typically within two to three months they lose, and we're going to say, hey, because it's congregations with heeds. Um, he will lose about 40% of his congregation, which sometimes equates to more than 50% of the money coming in because it's the top money givers that are walking out the door. So that's typically what's happening. But there's a lot of pressure going on from other avenues that have never been going on before this. So we have not only gay people coming out and visibly, but the witness of their lives, they're clearly Christians that we can't deny any There's tons of resources out there now that are helping people through this conversation, whether they be in media, or they be in books, in lectures. And then another huge piece of this is something that we didn't have until about four or five years ago, parents. Parents sitting in every congregation, in every state, that are for the first time sticking by their children. This was not happening five years ago. Hmm. If you came out as gay, your parents, for the pressures on them within conservative churches, were um, siding with the church. So these pressures are all happening at the same time, and pastors are listening. I believe that the pastors that are educated and are seeing these pressures going on um, are being compelled by what they are hearing. And as I alluded to, just last week, I sat with 40 pastors and ministry leaders of one of the largest evangelical churches in America, and at the end, so I specifically did a two-hour presentation to them, and uh, and I hit my mark, Erin. I know I don't often hit my time mark, but two hours and two minutes, and um, and I and I was told eleven people in that room were not happy that I was there, but because I presented such a compelling academic argument that they could see where this went, they would have to be very dishonest within themselves to have not been moved. And I saw every person in that room completely lean in to what I was saying, because they could see what happened. So this is not something I can do with a meme or a cute little saying or a three-second video. It's gotta be something where people are willing to listen to foundational work. And if they are intellectually uh, Christ-centered, academically interested, and they have the hearts of a pastor and they've seen enough of this, when they listen, they are compelled. So I have lots of hope, but it's only gonna be the ones that are willing to risk, that are really saying, what happened? And so I'm trying, my next effort will be to get this two-hour video made. They took the two-hour video to pass around within their congregation, uh, to pass around within their leadership. They have a leadership of 700 people, leadership. And so the fact that a big church like that was willing to let me in the door after 14 months of being a pest, Um, they were willing to let me in the door. That's a big risk for them to take. And pastors are taking this risk. And the more pastors that do it, I go to a church that's fully affirming, but two years ago, they weren't. Mm. And they, I went over there, I left my church for 25 years, because I couldn't even say when I walked in the door what I did for a living, and when I spoke publicly, I couldn't say the name of my church or even the name of my pastor. They completely dissociated from me. But they let me come every Sunday. And so I started going to this other church where I heard there was movement. And within two years, two weeks ago, the pastor did a gay wedding. It happened to be his own son. But he did a gay wedding. And those things are, the shift is happening. I can see it because I'm on the inside. And I'm very hopeful that it's gonna shift, But the pastors that do it. It is a huge risk, and I think It's just going to be a question of, does the Christian integrity override the fear of financial risk? Right? Yeah, I'm I'm skeptical with Colin, but I'm optimistic with you, (laughs) Kathy. Yeah, yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Sorry for my uh, scholarly lack of information, but I wanted to ask a specific question about the the first time the word appeared Mm -hmm because uh, I don't even know which verse that is. Okay. And then what was it before in the okay. prior English versions? So it's in the Revised Standard Version. It's in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. And there's two Greek words in there, and they are arsenicoite and And It was the first version of the Bible that those two words were completely combined. One of them, the best meaning of it is those who sexually exploit others, which will be arsenicoite for power or control. And Malakoy would be those who take the social and sexual position of a woman. So to be a woman before about the 1890s was a repulsive, disgusting thing. So if a man even had the attitudes or disposition of a woman, which is very complex, all those things that have to do with femininity that we know that women are lust-filled, and they cheat, and they lie, and they're excessive in everything they do, that's the definition of a woman. So if a man were to have those dispositions and take the position of being penetrated, he was operating in the feminine, and that word was malicous. So the, the, it was really about abuse. Um, it was about power, and those two words, by the team, were taking the two words for the first time ever, were combined up made into this word homosexual, which had only been in the lexicon by that point for 50 years, and not even in the dictionary. It had only been in a dictionary since 1934, but in 1946 it ended up in the Bible. And it combined up, and typically before that, in almost every version of the Bible, it was abusers of others, those who abuse themselves, and those who are penetrated like a woman. So it it was always involving abuse, uh, a power, control, a differential of age or power, but it never had anything to do with women because women couldn't give up their manly honor. They didn't have any manly honor to give up. So it never included women anyway, but all of a sudden when you make it the word homosexual, it automatically includes women. So it's a, it was a bad translation. The translation right before that from the team members was cadamite, sodomite, which was really a better translation, but they were trying to make the Bible readable and they thought a lot of people don't know what the word catamite means, and that really was the basis of it. It was very simple, non-malicious, and not well informed. But nobody was well informed about human sexuality, so it was really a very unfortunate mistake.